Welcome to Funding the Dream, the number one podcast for the number one crowdfunding platform, Kickstarter. Now here's your host, Richard Bliss. Welcome to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. I'm Richard Bliss, the host. And I want to uh, tell you, I appreciate very much for those of you who have been out there listening, uh, particularly as we've come out with a series of new um, episodes, the, the outpouring of support and listeners has been, I have to admit, a little bit of astound- astounding. It has been uh, uh, great to see so many people taking advantage of the guests that I've had on the show who have shared so many wonderful things. Today's guest is someone who has supported this podcast for years. I'm thrilled to have him on the show. He is Jason Huffman from Battle Hardened Games. Jason, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on the show, Richard. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm excited because you have a Kickstarter project that, um, is, that ran, finished, and the shipping is about to happen. And I'm a backer of that project, and that um, is going to be arriving here soon. And I'm looking forward to it. Tell us a little bit about Battle Hardened Games. Battle Hardened Games was uh, basically an idea I had a couple of years ago that uh, I wanted to try to create one or more games that um, leveraged history paintings, basically paintings from the 1700s, 1800s, um, from different wars that I always found interesting reading about, um, mostly as as a kid, but even still today. And uh, so I formed a company, and uh, right around that time, too, Kickstarter was really starting to pick up, so I thought, let's try to use Kickstarter to... uh, to fund this and market this. So yeah, that was, that was really the gist of it. So your, your games are based on art from, from that time period. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's all, um, paintings in, in that style, in that, uh, in that period, basically the mid, mid 1700s. And, uh, I, I would potentially go as far forward as say like the Napoleonic Wars, but so it's all me- public domain imagery. So what? So that's what I was going to ask. Is so often um, artwork is one of the biggest costs when it comes to creating any type of game, and so you're using uh, artwork that's out there that's in the public domain, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And that, that was a big um, barrier to me as well. Although what I found out, at least for me, was that the graphic design costs I found those a lot more costly than perhaps what the artwork would have been. But um, nonetheless, it was a nice um, barrier to remove to be able to say, okay, I can leverage that which is, is out there already. Of course, so, it took a long time to find things that were you know, thematically appropriate for everything I was doing. Sure, and so then that brings up another question, is, is that if I take a picture of a piece of art, I have created another piece of art so that my picture of that art isn't public domain. Is, is my understanding. So did you track down where like galleries or uh, museums, that type of thing, actually put it up there into the public domain? How, because there's a lot of listeners who are asking themselves, wow, can I go out and get public domain art and use it in my games? And I guess the answer is yes, but there are some challenges, right? Um, well, I mean, my understanding anyway, and um, in, in another life, I was also an attorney. So um, I read the case law on this. And uh, there's basically like a federal case which speaks to whether you're making like a, I think it's called like a slavish copy or something like that. But basically, if you're just copying that which is already in the public domain, uh, you're fine. It's nobody can assert an intellectual property right over that. Um, and I also cleared that with a couple of other intellectual property attorneys. So I, I've always felt very comfortable about that. Oh, good, good. And speaking of other life. Uh, Jason, you've done uh, quite a bit in your life. You have um, 
You're in the military. You're a major in the military, uh, deployed to Afghanistan. Thank you for your service. We uh, certainly appreciate that. You, uh, you have a full-time job. Your wife has a full-time job. And you have a new addition to your family. Yes, yeah. Yep, new baby within the last uh, couple of months here. So it's definitely been a, a busy time. Absolutely. <laughs> lots, of, lots of competing uh, interests, but, you know, very much... Uh, focused on fulfilling the Kickstarter campaign at the moment and bringing that to a successful conclusion, of course. Well, I thought it was a nice touch that you uh, shared a picture of your uh, new child on your Kickstarter update page. It was, uh, yeah. right. That was kind of fun to, to kind of fun to see that, that, uh, everybody could see maybe what was uh, drawing off a little bit of your attention, but off often life, <laughs> life comes that way. Yeah. I mean, you'll hear people talk about wanting to have a little bit more of a, you know, a human, uh, element to the campaign or, you know, following the, the person that they're backing. So I thought, uh, I'll throw a little bit of that in there. Now it was excellent. And speaking of campaigns, this is not your first Kickstarter campaign, but it is your first Kickstarter project. Is that how we could say that? Sure. Yep. Right. We, uh, well, I had uh, tried to launch it previously in the uh, fall of 2014 and did not make it. Uh, got about like three fourths of the way to the finish line, but, you know, ultimately, I did not raise uh, the funds that I was seeking. So, um, this second attempt in fall of sixteen uh, did did make it to the uh, the funding goal. So, tell me about that experience because on my show, I have often advocated this concept of identifying that that you don't have to see this thing through to the end and, and consider it a failure, but it's a learning experience to stop, reset, relaunch has always been a theme that I've really pursued. At what point did you make that decision? And I got to believe it was a hard decision. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, one of the hardest decisions was actually to try it again. Um, you know, I guess in, in the first campaign, one of the things I realized was like, wow, you know, there, at least based on the way I was marketing it, there just wasn't that much demand for this concept. So, um, you know, it was kind of a tough pill to swallow. Um, but there were good things about it for sure. I mean, um, one thing was the exposure that it did give me in a, in a marketing sense. So, you know, when I relaunched a lot of those backers who had discovered the first time around did show up again, uh, which was great because it was two years later, they could have moved on, but they did come back an awful lot of them. And so, you know, like my first 48 hours, for example, uh, after launching the second campaign, was like twice as successful, you know, twice as many backers, twice as much money as the first time around. So, um, did you keep in touch? Yeah, with those, just, did you keep in touch with those who had backed it in the first time? I mean, uh, a, a little bit, you know, mostly just people's inquiries here and there. But the main thing I did was as simple as just um, messaging everybody on the first campaign page. You know, you can you can reach out to all of them via the tools that are in Kickstarter. So, you know, letting them know, hey, this second campaign is about to launch and would really appreciate your support and an awful lot of them uh, did come around what did you do because you did successfully fund the second time around uh, i was a backer and i'm very like i said earlier on the show here i'm excited for that to show up here pretty soon uh it's a it's kind of a special subject right 1750 uh britain versus france and so it's not exactly your most common we're not talking an exploding kittens project here Right. This is a this right. is a narrow interest, a narrow niche. What did you do differently? Do you think to find that success that uh, that you were able to hit your funding goal the second time around? Well, a, a lot of them was. Um, and I, I think we mentioned this a little bit um, before we started the show. Was 
uh, I was actually able to really change a lot of my like cost structure or basically my numbers um, via finding a different printer. All of my uh, numbers really had been predicated on a funding, uh, a print run with Panda Game Manufacturing. So I'd gotten quotations from them. I'd done all the, you know, the reverse math on what was going to be needed for that print run. And about a year after that, I had met uh, Longpack Manufacturing. They're out of Shanghai. And uh, basically, they were able to offer uh, lower minimum order quantity and the cost per unit were down quite a bit. So it really changed all my math. It, it made everything um, a, lot, uh, a lot cheaper. And I was able to reduce my funding goal a lot. I think one of the challenges the first time around was that I had a funding goal of 28000 And particularly as uh, a new, new publisher, new designer, I think that was probably intimidating for a lot of people or, you know, they weren't seeing enough momentum early in the campaign to carry it through to a successful conclusion, you know, and I could tell, you know, there'd be certain times people would be canceling and you can just kind of get that feel for people thinking, ah, this is not going to make it. So the second time around to have such a lower funding goal of only $12,000, well, two days in, I was already at 8,000, you know, I was already two thirds of the way there. Um, in the first 48 hours. So I think the, you know, the comfort level of people um, in thinking, yes, this is going to make it so I can, I can kind of comfortably fund this thinking it's going to, it's going to make it to the finish line. And I'm not going to, there's something there about, you know, people don't want to have that association with a project that doesn't Isn't make that- it or at least. Right. And and some well, no, it's very true. It's, it's very human nature. We don't, we, we, we don't want to be associated with a loser uh, unless, you know, there's always yep. that underdog thing, but no, they, that and even though you don't, your money won't be taken if the project fails on Kickstarter, it still is a psychological, yeah, but I don't really want to be associated with something that failed. And yes, absolutely. Right. They'll pull the money back, even though the money would have been pulled back anyway, if they hadn't done anything. But right. there's that psychological. And so how much, so what was your ending funding? How much funding did you raise the second time? Uh, you know, it was, it was about 21,000, 21,000, um, which, you know, it's not a particularly different number than the first time around, but it is, it was a lot more backers. I felt good about that, that, you know, I had about 450 backers instead of the first time around, I think it was like 320. So, um, yeah, I, I basically feel good about the end result there. I would Especially too. Given the amount of, there's so much more competition, you know, in in getting results that were similar to 2014. Given the number of games that are out there, I, I felt pretty good about that. And, and speaking of the number of games, because we've uh, previous shows, I've been talking just recently about the tsunami of games that have hit the market. Um, there were a thousand games that uh, Essen released in October of 2016 at the trade show alone in a week. A thousand yeah. new games hit the market. Uh, do you think, because you have a pretty narrow niche category, is there a lot of, are you finding a lot of competition for your category on Kickstarter or out in the market? Well, you know, I don't know. It's, um, it, it kind of almost goes to, I think I, I heard you talking with uh, Aldo on one of your last podcasts about like, you know, is there, is there industry overall growth, you know, new people entering this arena? Is that keeping pace with the, influx of games or, you know, is the, is the additional number of titles being created, you know, exceeding the rate at which the entire industry is growing? I, I don't know the answer, but, um, you know, for my game, I don't know. I think that it seems like people who are interested in the concept are still interested that I I don't think they're, they're thrown off by 
many other titles that have been coming out. Okay. So let's go back to this with, with this uh, topic that you mentioned, because you're operating at, with a couple of hundred copies, a couple of hundred backers, um, you're operating at, uh, at levels of scale that are vastly different than some of these bigger projects. Uh, Gloomhaven uh, was on the show just recently. You know, they're, they're talking about tens of thousands of copies of their game, but you're talking about a couple of hundred. How big was your initial print run? Right, I'm just, I'm just printing a thousand. Okay, so that's interesting that a thousand copies, um, and I can understand now why, because Panda's dealing with some of these bigger manufacturers, and so they probably came to you and said, look, this is the minimum print run, this is what we do. Not that they were, not that they were undesirable for you to use them, it's just that it was a different scale of operation that you needed for a much smaller project, right? It, absolutely. You know, I, I think they've, they've got probably pretty good market share, if I'm stating that the right way. Yeah, so. that's, pretty, that's pretty accurate. And they've been on the show uh, years ago when they first started out. I had uh, um, uh, them, the founders there on the show as we talked about that. And it's fun to see this entire ecosystem start to grow up. But with that, then, as they get bigger and bigger, there opens up opportunities for smaller companies like the one that you're working with, Longpack, right? Is that what they're called? Yes, yep, Long Longpack. And I think you're absolutely right. And I know I've seen a lot of a number of emails anyway from um, new printers that I've never heard of previously that um, it would seem to me are trying to enter this market kind of on the, uh, on the factory side. Yeah, that's interesting. And then for distribution, because now you have the same challenge with distribution to find ways to do that. You've gone a couple of routes with distribution, uh, particularly in Europe. You were talking about who you were working with over there. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of kind of do a, a mix of things. I'm actually I'm actually doing three different things. Um, there's some airmail from China that uh, there was a, a rewards tier that I, I'm going with. I back that one. Yep. 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 So that's um, that's actually interesting too because um, Longpack the the printer is going to coordinate a lot of that. I know there's been different companies that have had problems with the airmail, but. Um, you know, I have like a U.S. based rep for Long Pack who um, I'm coordinating some of that stuff with. So I feel good about that. Then I'm also doing Amazon uh, fulfillment for the U.S. And, you know, why am I doing that? I'm doing that mostly because, you know, I want the uh, post campaign copies to be there, you know, available for people to order and warehouse at Amazon. And then for the EU, I'm uh, using kind of more traditional. Uh, fulfillment company in GamesQuest, which is sort of the top recommended company, um, you know, for like Stonemaier Games and their, um, their spreadsheets that track a lot of that stuff. So, so it's a mix. A, right, a good mix, and it, it meets the different needs. And that's really, I guess, one of the lessons that you take away is the flexibility. Shipping becomes such a critical component of the overall success because we've there's been some horror stories, right? Some of these uh, project owners who have grossly overestimated what it takes to actually get a box of physical stuff to the location, no matter where it might be. And that, uh, that's something that you have to constantly monitor, track, and be aware of in order to avoid a costly mistake. Absolutely. Um, I know I've got all my spreadsheets laid out, you know, where I've got every, right. every line item in there. And, uh, it's actually something in the last couple of years that I'm probably a lot better at now than I was in 2014 is just even something as simple as proficiency in Microsoft Excel and you know, building up formulas and that sort of thing. It's making sure you have everything accounted for. So as we, as we wrap up here with the last few minutes, some lessons that you learned, 
some, and, and do, are there any new lessons that you learned in this latest campaign? You're like, oh man, why, why didn't I, why did that one got me? Why didn't I pay attention to that one? Anything that jumped up and bit you? You know, I, I think the last campaign actually, I felt really good about, um, there was just a number of things that kind of surprised me. Uh, I know that I was a little surprised by how many people did come back from two years prior. That was very cool. That's a nice one. Um, yeah, I, I guess that maybe be more of an observation is, you know, a lot of the time you'll talk about bringing the crowd with you to the campaign. And I, I don't dispute that, but I, I will say that it certainly is the case that a lot of people did discover my game via the execution of the campaign. So like one kind of maybe interesting thing is I did let that campaign, the first one go to completion, you know, like for 30 days, I did not cancel it early because I felt like it was kind of great exposure for it. And there, um, there were people I think who discovered it even in the late stages that came back for the second campaign. So while you definitely do want to bring your crowd to the campaign, I'll also say that I discovered some of my crowd for sure via the platform itself. So that was that was interesting. No, I like that one because in the past I have often advocated for canceling, pulling out, canceling, retooling, and relaunching. But you know, I might have to to soften my stance on that because you bring up a valid point: is that because it's so crowded, the longer that you can have it out there, the longer you can have people's eyeballs on it. Even if you fail, it's still an audience now that you can pull into later on. And I know a lot of people have. Uh, have discussed that with me, and I was kind of on the other side, but I think uh, I think I might be uh, changing my opinion on that. Don't don't quote me on that, yeah. but, but I might be changing my opinion. <laughs> <on that. laughs> yeah, and I mean, I would be gauging, you know, like, okay, how presentable is it in its current state? Are you getting some activity, or is it just dead in the water to where you don't even really want people to, to see, see it? it in its right, state? and and that's a valid point. Yeah. Thank, you, thank you for rescuing my uh, opinion on that one. So yes, that's an excellent <laughs> excellent point. So, yeah. uh, Jason, I certainly appreciate you um, coming on the show to talk about this. You've been a strong supporter on Patreon of this uh, of this show, and it's nice to see success um, because you did start off a couple of years ago um, when we met, and it's been a bit of a journey on a personal side with the family and everything that's been going on there, as well as with the uh, the professional side of the games. Uh, any question? Any questions for me that maybe I could answer? Anything that uh, you know that you've just said, like. Uh, an opinion or anything like that? So we wrap up? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I, I'd just like to, I guess, mention that, um, you know, if people are interested in the game uh, 1750 Britain versus France, um, you can pre-order it right now. Like off my website, I've got a, a pre-order system through Celery, and then I'll also have it on uh, Amazon in the U.S. and GamesQuest um, through the uh, United Kingdom Fulfillment Company. And they can um, started this summer. Excellent. And they yeah. can find that at battlehardenedgames.com. Right? Yes, or, um, yep, and I've also got uh, facebook.com slash battlehardenedgames. Which is often uh, where I have gone out to, to, to kind of check a, take a look at it. So if you're interested, my listening audience, to uh, these type of games that uh, draw up history, and I, I, I didn't even realize, I guess I wasn't paying attention, this, uh, the artwork interface, I'm looking forward to that. Jason, thanks again very much for joining us. Yep, thank you for having me too, Richard. You've been listening to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. My guest has been Jason Huffman, owner of Battle Hardened Games and his project uh, 1750, Britain versus France, which is due out any moment now. Thanks for listening. We certainly appreciate your support on Patreon and those of you who have reached out and stayed in contact. We look forward to hearing from you in the future. Hopefully you've been inspired. I know I have. 
Take care.